It's a quiet afternoon in the south-central Alaskan port of Valdez. The day is Good Friday, March 27th of 1964. Easter is just around the corner as snow from the harsh winter litters the ground. A 10,000-ton cargo ship, the China, has just docked in the harbor. Many residents make their way down to the docks to meet the ship. The children are especially excited to greet the ship hands, who customarily toss the kids pieces of fruit or candy. It's late in the afternoon, nearing 5.30 Alaska Standard Time, as the crew unloads its shipment. Meanwhile, the China's captain, Merrill Stewart, is dining with his first mate aboard the vessel. Neither him, nor his crew, nor any of the men, women, and children on the crowded docks are aware of what's about to happen next. The known death toll in Alaska's devastating earthquake mounted steadily through the night. Federal and state officials now say that 66 persons are known dead, countless injured, and may be unaccounted for. President Johnson's personal representative, Edward McDermott, reports from Anchorage, as you heard, that the latest death toll is based on reports coming in from isolated communities that had not been heard from since the Friday night quake. An earlier figure of 38 was based on reports from Anchorage, Seward, Kodiak, Valdez, and Whittier. It may be days, possibly weeks, before the exact toll of dead, injured, and missing is known. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and here is 10 minutes about the 1964 Alaskan earthquake. At 5.36 p.m. that Good Friday, 40 miles to the west of Valdez in a sparsely populated region near the Prince William Sound, and 12 and a half miles beneath the surface of the earth, a vicious earthquake began that brutally tore across Alaska. Measuring at a magnitude of 9.2, it would become the second largest earthquake ever recorded, and the largest in North America. Valdez is the nearest town to the epicenter. While dining, Captain Stewart immediately felt the first tremors of the earthquake, which quickly escalated to violent shakes that shook the entire vessel. Within a minute of the quake beginning, the captain reached the bridge of his ship and looked out towards the docks, only to see them, in his words, folding up, collapsing in a tremendous noise, while those who had gathered on the docks ran away as they were being demolished. As soon as the earthquake started, it caused a series of pummeling tsunamis which ravaged the coast of Alaska. While the captain of the China was observing the docks crumble, the harbor began to drain, and after several minutes, an enormous tidal wave, prompted by an underwater landslide that was triggered by the quake, came rushing in. The wave lifted the ship 30 feet in the air before dropping it atop where the docks used to be. As it continued on, the wave rolled through Valdez, annihilating the two city blocks nearest the water. An estimated 30 lives were taken when those two docks were destroyed, most of whom were children. As night set in, three additional tidal waves hit the town, the largest of which hit at high tide between 1 and 2 a.m. Later, Captain Stewart would provide the shocking account of these events to TV and radio reporter Jeannie Chance. In the weeks following the catastrophe, 
She worked diligently to broadcast critical information regarding the recovery efforts to the public over the radio. She would later go on to serve as a state representative. Chance included the captain's account in a written collection of eyewitness accounts she chronicled of the disaster. Having lasted over four minutes, the havoc the earthquake inflicted in Valdez was happening all over south-central Alaska. Seward, located on Resurrection Bay to the southwest of Valdez, suffered a similar fate. Tsunamis hit the town while a submarine landslide caused 4,000 feet of waterfront to slide into the bay, taking with it many of the Standard Oil Company's fuel tanks and a warehouse. 13 people were killed. On Kodiak Island, giant waves swept 50-ton crab boats into the town. 23 people died there. 13 more people were killed in Whittier, which was dredged by several tsunamis. And at the small village of Chenega in Prince William Sound, a 90-foot wave decimated the village, destroying all but two buildings and killing 23 of its 75 residents. In Alaska's largest and most populated city, Anchorage, 80 miles west of the epicenter, ground motion rather than tsunamis created the greatest devastation. Seismic shocks were responsible for severely damaging many concrete block high-rises and a high school. The Anchorage International Airport was forced to shut down when the earthquake shook an air control tower until it collapsed, killing the operator inside. Entire city blocks were heaved up or sunk down in the vehement shaking. Ground cracks inundated the metropolitan area, splitting across people's backyards and dividing paved roads. However, it was landslides that were responsible for the most damage in Anchorage. Eleven massive landslides, a result of ground liquefaction, when the shaking of an earthquake alters soil into a liquid state, hit the town with catastrophic results. The landslides demolished numerous city blocks, including the total destruction of an elementary school. The cost of the earthquake upon Anchorage was estimated to be around $200 million in property damage. That's $1.7 billion in today's currency. Between the quake and the landslides, 157 commercial buildings were destroyed, along with 215 homes. Nine people were killed as a result of the earthquake in Anchorage. One eyewitness, Bob Atwood, a journalist and longtime editor at the Anchorage Times, had just gotten home and was practicing his new trumpet when suddenly his house began to rock. He first saw that the chandelier was shaking, which was standard for the common tremor. But then he noticed things in the room start to fall that didn't typically fall during earthquakes. Bob said once the house started lurching, he headed straight for the front door. This all took only a matter of seconds. I mean, it happened fast. So then I was out in the driveway and turned around and looked and saw the house uh, twist and squirm, the earth under it moving, and uh, even seemed to elongate the house and then shrink it up, and uh, uh, the noise was terrific. Uh, just uh, the noise of a dying house. I couldn't watch that very long because trees were falling. It occurred to me that I should stand where a tree won't hit me. But I had no time to be concerned about that because uh, the earth started opening up. So instead of worrying about trees, uh, I was just wondering where am I going to stand. And uh, 
it was then that uh, I discovered I was falling. The earth had just opened up, and I was going down, and it seemed an awful long distance. And I got the impression of darkness going down, but when I lit, I was in soft, dry sand, and uh, I was at the bottom of a rather sharp V uh, in the earth, which opened up, kept opening up more. As Bob was stuck at the bottom of this gaping crack that formed in his yard, it began to expand, slithering its way towards his neighbor's house. That's when it occurred to him that the disaster extended far beyond his own home. The newly formed ravine was undermining his neighbor's house, and it was beginning to slip down into the crack. Though he feared it might fall down on top of him, it thankfully stopped sliding after only a few moments. Now, I was very lucky, and here I was in the bottom of this thing, helpless. I had to scramble to stay on top to keep from being buried, and uh, I wasn't on top of anything much because I was still at the bottom. And trees, I could hear snapping and falling and all this going on up above, and the roar of an earthquake is a, a sound in itself. Uh, I don't know how you describe it. It's a rumble and a slithery sound uh, all mixed up. I could just scramble to stay, keep from being buried, and think how lucky that none of these things have hit me that were there in the bottom of that ditch with me. And after a while, the world seemed to quieten down a bit. Although there's still movement, you can still feel it. And I clambered up the side of the, the chasm that I was in, loose sand, and climbed up in the frozen soil and got up on the surface and looked around. And as far as I could see in every direction, I just saw nothing but desolation in what used to be our, our neighborhood where we lived. Bob ends his account by stating that his story is just one among countless situations that individuals in Anchorage experienced with many other circumstances being far more severe than his own. The earthquake that rocked Alaska that Good Friday was unlike any that preceded it. Geologists were in disbelief when they discovered that the quake disrupted 185,000 square miles of Alaskan surface, spanning an area larger than California. Some regions were so disturbed by seismic activity that they rose a staggering 38 feet in elevation. In contrast, the small town of Portage sunk 8 feet from its pre-quake elevation. Long since abandoned, all that remains today of the town of Portage is a few half-collapsed wooden structures on the side of a highway and a forest of dead trees, killed by exposure to salt water when the ground sank. Even though Alaska unquestionably suffered the brunt of the earthquake's effects, it wasn't the only area to feel the mammoth quake's presence. The earthquake created a monstrous tsunami that raced south across the Pacific. Traveling as fast as 400 miles per hour, the tidal wave passed by Hawaii, in total traveling more than 8,400 miles before dissipating. As it moved along the west coast of North America, it caused severe damage. When the waves hit Port Alberni in British Columbia, Canada, it wiped out 50 houses and damaged an additional 375. In Crescent City, California, a series of four waves flooded the town around midnight Pacific time, killing 12 residents. And much further southeast, in the Gulf of Mexico, sudden water fluctuations left minor damage in coastal Louisiana and Texas. Additionally, 
The earthquake's 9.2 magnitude was so forceful that distant states like Texas and Florida experienced minor seismic motion. In Seattle, Washington, the city's famous Space Needle visibly swayed as it felt the effects of the quake some 1,300 miles away from the epicenter. George Plafker, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, happened to be in Seattle for a conference when the earthquake struck. It was almost quitting time for the day, Plafker later recalled, when some guys came back from the Space Needle and said they felt rocking. Upon his urgent request, he along with two others were promptly sent to Alaska to survey the aftermath of the disaster and to determine its cause, quote, before everything was bulldozed flat by the engineers. Plafker and his colleagues began to observe and record the results of the quake, examining the disrupted areas that had suffered massive cracks, sinking, and upheaval. Plafker would be the one to discover the origin of the massive earthquake. At that time in the early 1960s, the tectonic plate theory, the theory that the Earth's outer shell is composed of enormous individual slabs of rocks, what we call plates, was beginning to be offered as a viable scientific theory. Upon his analysis, Plafker believed this quake and others of the same magnitude, like the one that occurred in Chile four years prior, were the result of shifting in these tectonic plates. Plafker realized that Alaska's southern coastline sat right atop where the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate converged, with the Pacific Plate diving down beneath the North American Plate. It's what's known as a subduction zone. The convergence of these two plates is what caused the earthquake. Here's how Plafker explains it. The oceanic crust is being pushed underneath that part of southern Alaska at a very low angle and there was a slip on the interface between the oceanic crust and the overlying continental crust. The Pacific Plate, what Plafker referred to as the oceanic crust, continually pushes forward into the North American Plate, moving about an inch and a half each year. Every so often, the plate suddenly and violently slips, resulting in a major earthquake, what Plafker has termed megathrust quakes. In 1964, it's estimated that the Pacific Plate rapidly slipped 60 feet beneath the North American Plate. It takes approximately 500 years of buildup for such a plate slip to occur. With his analysis of the earthquake, George Plafker provided the first real evidence to support the tectonic plate theory. The Good Friday earthquake, as some have called it, devastated south-central Alaska claiming at least 131 lives, the majority of whom were killed in the ensuing tsunamis. Aftershocks could be felt for a year following the disaster. Alaska has faced countless earthquakes before and since that quake on March 27, 1964, but none can compare to that megathrust quake that rocked not only Alaska, but the entire world. As for Valdez, the damage done was so sudden and so severe that the whole town was practically destroyed in a matter of minutes. Later, when scientists learned that the ground was too unstable and susceptible to earthquakes, the town's old location was abandoned and Valdez was moved to a more secure location four miles away. Today the town is flourishing with a population of almost 4,000. It serves as the endpoint for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. 
Thank you for listening. The archival audio clips used in today's episode are courtesy of the Genie Chance Papers, Archives and Special Collections, Consortium Library, University of Alaska, Anchorage. For 10 minutes about, I've been your host, Forrest Kelly. And that's all I've got to say about the 1964 Alaskan earthquake.